You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 27. to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. On today's show, we're talking with filmmaker and animator Lucas Martell. Lucas directed the animated short film The Ocean Maker in partnership with the animation studio Mighty Coconut. The Ocean Maker is a short film without dialogue However, it is set in a post-apocalyptic world of extreme drought, where water must be harvested from clouds. If you haven't seen this film, go check it out now. Um, This interview will make more sense, and it'll only take 10 minutes of your time to watch it. Um, We'll be chatting with Lucas about the role of these types of stories in conservation outreach and how a certain level of ambiguity in a story that deals with these controversial topics uh, like climate change uh, might actually be beneficial. Let's uh, jump into this conversation. Mm -hmm. All right. I am here with Lucas Martell, who is a filmmaker and an animator uh, who has collaborated with Mighty Coconut for his latest film, Ocean Maker. Uh, Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, you bet. Um, yeah, I'm really excited for this conversation here. This is uh, a, a little bit different than uh, sort of the, the topics that we normally cover on the show, but I, I think there's some potential to have a really fascinating conversation here. Um, I'm just cool. going to start off by asking you how you first became interested in filmmaking. Um, well, I guess I kind of came into it from a, a weird direction. I'd always been interested in it since I was a, since I was a kid uh, and just never really had a whole lot of opportunities to do it. I was actually, actually a music major in college and was playing around a lot in the – doing a lot of stuff in the recording studio and they also had an edit bay. So I started getting – just dabbling into – you know, and this was back in the – Back in the sort of late '90s, early 2000s, when it wasn't, it still wasn't super easy to do this stuff on your own with home computers and all of that. Um, but, anyways, long story short, I, I moved to Austin thinking that I was going to be getting into sound for film and more of the music scene down here. And uh, someone saw a, a visual effects shop that I had done for a little short film in college, and uh, before I knew it, I started getting a lot of work as a visual effects artist. And then I, I kind of picked up and learned animation just because it was something I was always interested in. Neat, neat. So it, it sounds like you sort of came into filmmaking uh, as an animator right from the beginning. Yeah, pretty much. I guess in college I had directed one short that was on 16 millimeter, um, but honestly, that was almost more of a technical exercise than anything else. So yeah, so really, I've been I've been focused on animation pretty much since you know since I can remember. So, so yeah. what what is it about animation that that you find most appealing? Um, I think part of it is the ability to i the stories that i always um like most are these very high concept or these um like i love sci-fi i love um all the you know a lot of the shorts and stuff that pixar are doing and all that sort of stuff so i think that um the ability to come up with something and not be limited by the practicality of like oh well we can't get this location or we can't get you know i like to think these really these big ideas and these things that you can never actually go out and film so animation is just the the best way of of getting those ideas on screen for me 
Are there components to the animation process that can be frustrating or, or, or difficult? Oh, I, I, you know, I think the whole process can be pretty frustrating and difficult. <laughs> um, it's it's fun, but at the same time, it is sitting on computers for you know the the bulk of your existence. So uh, we've you know it's funny because that's where we spend all of our time, but. We also, most animators have kind of grown to hate computers to some extent just because they kind of take over our lives. So um, that's I, definitely the toughest thing about animation, especially when you're doing this sort of high, high-end animation, is uh, it's just the, um, the endurance factor. Um, my first film, which was six minutes long, that one took about five years to make. Um, this one's ten minutes long and it only took a year and a half, so we're getting a lot faster. All right, yeah, that's yeah. a dramatic improvement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So mm-hmm. I, 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 I'm curious about the process, you know, um, yeah. and, and you, you mentioned that your, your first film, which is only six minutes, took five years to complete. Right. I mean, I, I imagine a lot of that was sort of a learning process for you. Uh, yeah, it's essentially it, that was how I learned to do animation. I didn't have any formal training. So by going through the process of that first film, which was called Pigeon Impossible, by the way, it's on YouTube if people want to check it out. Um, that was pretty much my sort of my wife jokingly refers to it as that Pigeon Impossible was my grad school. That was me just sort of sitting in a room, banging my head against the wall for five years until the film was released. And um, and I, I had some help on it, but that one I did probably about 75 or 80 percent of the of the work on it. Whereas with the second one, um, the new one here, I was able to bring on a small crew of people and uh, that's part of the reason that we were able to get it done so much faster is that, you know, we had a we had a, a dedicated team of people working on it for a chunk of time. So, Gotcha. Yeah, I, I love that you compare working on your first film to uh, to graduate school. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. I, it, it's funny, you know, the first film that I produced um, was a it was an hour long documentary. Uh-huh. It took me about the same amount of time to to complete it as it took you to complete your yeah. film. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, documentary is is very different than than animation, but but I, I I use that same comparison often. You know, sort of comparing it to a, a graduate school yeah. program. You know, it's 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 just a huge learning process, and yeah. um, you know, you're when when you're doing it on your own and teaching yourself as you go. Um, yeah, it's it's yeah. It, it, it's a good way to do it. There's a lot of frustration, but I think ultimately, you, I think you probably get more out of it than maybe you even would going through a, a legitimate graduate school program. Yeah, yeah, having actually done it, the whole thing sort of soup to nuts, and and yeah, and documentaries are in many ways the same sort of thing. Just because most documentaries, it's not unusual for them to take years and years to produce, and typically documentaries don't have large budgets, so it's you going out with the camera or, you know, you know, kind of piecemealing it, finding volunteers and, and stuff. So honestly, the documentary world is more similar to animation than a lot of the uh, live action, you know, the um, dramatic live action stuff. So, right. You know, that's, that's interesting. And I hadn't really drawn on that comparison, but um, yeah, that, that, that definitely makes sense for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So your latest film, which is called Ocean Maker, uh, mm-hmm. was just recently released, uh, which uh, this was a part of uh, sort of an Earth Day campaign, right? So mm-hmm. this is a film that uh, I, I guess had a certain level of sort of, uh, in, I guess it, it had an environmentalist component to it. Um, I, yeah. um, maybe you could just start off by giving us sort of a brief synopsis of the film. Yeah, well, uh, so The Ocean Maker, it all takes place in a sort of post-apocalyptic world after all of the oceans have dried up, and the only source of water is the clouds. So the story is all about this um, pilot who's trying to seed the clouds to make it rain, but in order to do that, she has to contend with all of the 
the air pirates who are going up into this cloud with big nets and catching the water out of the clouds because that's the only water source that they have. So um, it's this uh, this sort of big action action drama. And yeah, there's definitely a, uh, a you know a pretty strong environmental uh, message to it. We were trying very hard not to. Um, not to hit people over the head with it. I think that's a very delicate, you know, line that you that uh, I I prefer stuff that's that uh, is a little bit more open to interpretation. But obviously, the environmental message was strong enough because Earth Day uh, Earth Day was very excited about it, and they distributed it as part of their Climate Week program and did a bunch of stuff, you know, with that. But but yeah, the whole the Earth Day collaboration is actually something that happened after the fact. Okay, interesting, yeah. interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely want to get into some of these uh, big picture questions, right, which you sort of just started to touch on about, you know, your approach and how you portray these uh, sort of subtle environmental issues in the film. But let's Mm -hmm. start off just with sort of basic idea, you know, like where where did the seed for this uh, story idea come from? Um, Well, let me first say spoiler alert, because um, if you haven't seen the film yet, it'll be much, much easier to just go watch it because the the where the idea for the short came from was that there's one image of uh, the two planes flying head to head with the cloud in the middle, um, and I had had that image in my head for about six years, um, and I had no idea what the story was. I just knew that it was uh, the end of a story, the climax of a story. Um, I just didn't know what that story was. So I was playing around with that idea a little bit more one day, and I started thinking, well, maybe the cloud is the thing that they're fighting over. Um, and this whole idea of a world without water all kind of spilled out of that um, that one image. And then it was also fueled by uh, here in Texas, we've been in a drought for several years. So going out to the lake near near Austin, um, we've been seeing, you know, boats just sitting in the middle of a more or less dry, dry lake bed for a while. So there was a lot of very topical things that also kind of came in to fuel that um, the visuals in this world. Yeah, that, man, that's fascinating. I, I I love that your original idea, or sort of the the source of this idea, came from just this one image, which is uh-huh. sort of the way. I mean, which is what sort of brings together all these different components of your story. It's I mean, that's your ending, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's fascinating. Um, mm-hmm. So I wonder why this this film has no dialogue in it. Um, right. And. I guess I'm wondering what sort of the thought process was, you know, uh, uh, in, in deciding not to include any, any dialogue in this. You know, that was, we had actually tried a, a cut of it with some dialogue at one point just to try to set up the world a little bit more. But um, ultimately, we, we knew from the beginning that we were going in a direction of at least minimal dialogue because it makes the film so much more cinematic and it really allows the music to sort of carry – um, to carry things. And also I think that comes down to what we were talking about. You know, you, I want the message to be clear yet at the same time, I don't want to hit people over the head with it. And so uh, leaving it a little bit more open to people's interpretation, I think is one way of, of doing that. Um, and so ultimately we, we, you know, we tried a cut that had a couple bits of dialogue in it and we were just realizing, you know what, we've got 90% of the film working without it. Let's, find a way to sell these last couple of, of ideas or things that we were going to cover with dialogue um, in, in a way without it. And honestly, it kind of also goes into the, the format of the story itself because it's, it's really just one character sitting in a cockpit 
Um, and most of the story is told by the movement and the actions of these of these planes flying through the sky. So um, it, it was just sort of in, inherent in the the setup of the story that we didn't have to include dialogue. And so at a certain point, we made a conscious effort. It's like, no, we're gonna we're gonna do this whole thing without words. And it was uh, kind of a, a challenge, but I do think that it really made things much more much more cinematic as a result. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I, I think I think the approach worked very well. Um, mm-hmm. And and I'm curious about you know. Um, I, I, it feels like you're sort of thrown into this this world right, mm-hmm. at the start of the film, and and you yeah. don't have any dialogue to sort of explain the backstory. Um, yeah. and it, it sort of feels like you're relying on uh, sort of like a baseline societal knowledge of you know what might have caused this environmental destruction. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I, most people who who watch it would probably assume that this was something, you know, maybe this was something caused by climate change, but but that's not directly addressed. Um right. and, and so I mean, I wonder, I mean, was was it was it your intention to leave sort of the 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 cause of the the destruction in this world that you created uh sort of uh ambiguous? Uh, yeah, and I should say that, that um, I actually have a feature version of the script. Essentially, the short film is like the first 10 minutes of what would eventually become the feature. It's all sort of like the prologue. Um, and so in the feature version, we do actually go a bit more into that backstory and we explain exactly what happened. Um, and there is a very specific event that I have in mind that uh, I think will be um, it will be satisfying and yet also a little surprising to people. Um, but for the short, we we realized that you know the the setup in the world was enough of just showing if you you know you showed the these this aircraft carrier sitting in the you know in the middle of a desert and the submarine and all of these just these couple of shots at the beginning and people get enough of the world that they can kind of start. Uh, it kind of gets their imagination working on on your as a filmmaker. It gets them, you know, putting their imagination to help you tell the story a little bit. And I think it also kind of helps hook people a little bit more. You know, you're not just going in with this long description of what happened. You're jumping right into it, and you know, it kind of just sucks you in a little bit more because of it. Great, great. Well, I, I'm excited to hear that you have a script uh, mm-hmm. uh, for a, a feature-length version of this film. That was one of the questions I had for you uh, yeah. later on, so that, that's mm-hmm. exciting to hear. I'm excited mm-hmm. to see how that develops over yeah. time. Um, but I kind of want to jump into a little bit of a, a discussion of, you know, the idea of um, sort of using films like this, you know, mm-hmm. films that sort of present this dystopic view of the world mm-hmm. that is maybe caused by, you know, environmental degradation in general or, you know, even climate change specifically. Yeah. Um, because there's a lot of debate, you know, uh, within the environmental community over the effectiveness of these types of messages, you know, and, mm-hmm. and there, there are a handful of Hollywood produced narrative films that have come out over the, the past several decades that that are set in climate change induced sort of post-apocalyptic landscapes. Yeah. Uh, you know, water world is sort of the first one that, that jumps, uh, uh, in, you know, to mind, um, yeah. uh, which, you know, uh, whether or not that did anything good for the issue is, you know, uh, <laughs> like, yeah, it's, we're it's, always <laughs> reluctant to get, and, and so many people have made the comparison between this because it, it is essentially sort of water world in reverse. Right. Um, so that, yeah, that's come up a couple of times and, uh, and yeah, there were, there were some good parts to that movie. Just overall, it, yeah, it had a kind of a hokey factor. But um, going back to what you were just talking about, I know one of the one of the big things uh, that I had said from the from the beginning of this film that I 
Um, something that I wanted to do that I, I think kind of helps it stand out a little bit is that it is a post-apocalyptic film, but I wanted to do a post-apocalyptic film about hope. And so one of the things that we tried really, really hard to do in this is that it, it presents this sort of bleak future, but at the same time, it's not the typical post-apocalyptic thing where it's just about trying to survive or, you know, there's so many of these films that get extremely, extremely violent. And obviously there's some, you know, there's some gunplay and some dogfights and stuff, but ultimately we wanted to sort of set the stage for this for this even larger story that's uh, that's about people trying to fix the problem and not just not just survive in this world. Yes, a, a lot of the debate, you know, uh, that that circles around stories like this, you know, and, and whether or not they can be used as sort of effective ways of uh, uh, sort of education or outreach in relation to environmental issues or climate change specifically mm-hmm. um, is well, yeah. Uh, a lot of these discussions sort of focus on on a, a, another film um, that is very much you know focused on climate change, mm-hmm. um, which is the day after tomorrow, um, which was very controversial, right? And I mean, it, yeah. it, it, it seems to have created a certain amount of backlash against this type of story. You mm-hmm. know, uh, uh, maybe just because you know, uh, you know, a, a lot of people talk about how the science wasn't totally accurate. Yeah. Um, you know, and and how it it sort of presented this view of uh, sort of the situation in relation to climate change as you know this is something that would only happen in a science fiction story. You know, and yeah. it's so over the top. It's like it it almost makes it less believable. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the big the other big things that that we were kind of trying to do differently in this one is that. As you mentioned, uh, well, the day after tomorrow in particular is one movie, and like a lot of movies, it's it's really a disaster movie. It's about what happens, and it's showing this sort of mass destruction. Um, with with our story, one of the things that we were trying to do very differently from that is that this takes place in sort of a, you know, in my mind, it, this is hundreds of years down the road from where we're at today. So it's almost this. Uh, this world that sort of rebuilt itself and, and it's obviously sort of a post-apocalyptic world, but at the same time, society has kind of rebuilt itself. There's still people it's, you know, it might not exactly be a, you know, an ideal society, but it is, it's not just about the, the disappearance of the oceans. It's about sort of trying to get back after that. So I think that's probably one area that sort of, is relative, I guess I would say maybe more new because so many of the film of films, especially in this post-apocalyptic genre, talk about the downfall and it's the moment that you get the zombie outbreak and it's people learning to survive. Whereas this is just sort of using that as a setup and we're going, you know, hundreds of years in the future to sort of start looking at what the solution might be. So at least that was what I was trying to do with it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's definitely an interesting approach. And the, those are the types of stories that that I actually find most appealing, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm a bit of a sci-fi nerd myself. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I definitely gravitate towards these sort of post-apocalyptic stories. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's that, that, that's the type of story that, that, that I appreciate the most or, yeah. you know, where, where you, you know, it really takes that thought experiment to the next level when you're thinking about, you know, uh, further down, you know, further down the road, further into the future. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it also seems like, you know, uh, getting back to, you know, just sort of the way you structured this story, you know, you, you avoid a lot of these concerns about getting the science right, which is, you know, that was sort of the, the primary, 
you know, I, I, I guess argument against the effectiveness of the day after tomorrow is that, mm-hmm. you know, the science wasn't totally accurate. So it, you know, it, it, it presents this idea of climate change creating an apocalypse as, you know, uh, something that would only happen in a science fiction film, right? But I mean, yeah. you're 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 not even focused on that. You you just throw the viewer into this world um, and sort of leave it up to their imagination as to you know how this how this m- might have come about. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and we could have talked about, or you know, we could have showed that, or we could have done a little a little intro. But that was, I guess, this never anything that we were we were interested in, we were more kind of interested in, in showing this, this world as it sort of all, you know, as something that already exists. We didn't feel like we needed to connect all of those dots. And, and yeah, I do think that leaving it open to interpretation, it, it helps avoid some of those things and it probably becomes a little less of a, um, it, it might shift the conversation over to, from being a, well, this is what happened. You know, we're not trying to be preachy with it. We're not being like, this is what climate change will do. This is what, you know, how all this stuff will happen. It's more of a, um, it's more of a just thinking about the world. And, and honestly, probably one of the, the bigger elements that people have been talking about, especially in the, in the conservation world is more about the sort of, because there are kind of some metaphors that people have drawn in terms of how people are going after the cloud within the film. And you've got sort of this larger commercial sort of group that's sort of taking control. And there's, I think there's probably some more metaphorical stuff that could be drawn from it as opposed to exact, you know, we're not trying to represent climate change exactly. So. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I like that. Yeah. There's, there's definitely some metaphors you could draw just by sort of watching this, um, th- this sort of battle for mm-hmm. water within this single cloud that we see in the film. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. uh, yeah. And definitely sort of, you know, parallels you could draw towards different approaches towards adapting to climate change. Exactly. Yeah. Cause I mean, people still need to drink. So <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. So th- there really, there really have been very few representations of climate change issues in popular narrative film since the day after tomorrow came out, which mm-hmm. was, you know, I look, I, I looked this up before uh, jumping on this interview. That was over ten years ago. Now that that film came out eleven years ago, um, huh. and there, yeah, there's there's just been. I mean, there are a few examples of of films that you know sort of uh, uh, incorporate climate change into you know sort of small components of the story, and there's a few that have sort of dealt with it head on, but you know, none that have been you know sort of the big box office hit that that day after tomorrow uh was um right i mean it, it almost seems like this sort of subgenre, which you know if you, if you read about it on online on some of these you know uh film review blogs that you know they call it cli-fi right yeah it almost uh-huh. it almost seems like this subgenre is has died out you know i mean are are, are, are you, you you mentioned that you know you're sort of working on developing this film in, into a feature are, are you hoping to bring this subgenre back you know that's that's interesting because you've done research that I haven't done, so you'll have to send me your notes on some of that stuff because that could be very useful um, as I'm yeah as I'm pitching this around. Um, but so yeah, I mean in the in the the feature version, I don't want to give too much away. Um, we do um, we do delve a little bit sort of more into that, but um, I guess the interesting thing is that it almost is more of a because of the future that it takes place in because it's so far down the road um it's almost more of a uh, if you were talking about the the intricacies of some of the plot 
uh, it starts to almost become more of a terraforming thing where we're literally ha- the characters are literally having to figure out how to terraform the earth. Now, the, how that plays out is much more, uh, much more in terms of the, you know, the, the struggle between the different factions and, and more of a, you know, it's, uh, it's not exactly, I know I love the, uh, the Mars trilogy. Oh, yeah, um, I'm a big fan read, of that as well. Yeah, yeah, that one's fantastic. Yeah, Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars. Um, if you haven't read that, check that out because yeah, that's essentially a book about or a trilogy, kind of about terraforming the surface of of Mars. And we've got some some threads of that, but I guess I guess yeah, I we definitely look back at one point and we kind of talk more about what happened. But it in general, it's trying to it's trying to look forward. It's trying to look forward and trying to present more solutions at least you know solutions to this fictional world that we've we've made up yeah yeah absolutely i like that and i like the the reference to the mars trilogy that that is one of my all-time favorite science fiction stories mm-hmm. yeah yeah exactly <laughs> Neat. it's yeah it's the mars trilogy but we've got junkyard planes in it so doesn't love <laughs> yeah. that Nice. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, do you think that, I mean, can stories like this uh, do they have the potential to affect change in this issue? I mean, is is that something that that you have been thinking about as you go about, you know, uh, uh, bringing this story to life? You know, I guess it, that's never really been my my prime concern. Obviously, I've got some. You know, just uh, me personally, I've got sort of I've got some views on the issue of climate change, and it, a lot of it comes down more to just sort of what we're what we're doing to to the planet, and even beyond just just climate change. Um, so I guess I've, I've never been super focused on that specifically. I do think that it could make a, I do think that it can make a, a dent. I don't think that a, a film like this is necessarily going to be the thing that you know, there's never going to be that one thing that totally, you know, changes everyone's mind and galvanizes everyone um, in support of this one thing. But I think that it opens it up for discussion. And by taking this more, um, this less heavy-handed approach, I hope that we can also reach some of the people who are a bit more on the other side of it and just present it as sort of like, you know, this is it's a it's a relatively easy way in. The the film has some very environmental aspects of it but it's easy to i think it's easy to digest and there's enough other stuff there that that might start opening people up to just start thinking about that this is something that i think about a lot in in the films that i produce you know Mm -hmm. um and you know the the stuff that i'm working with is you know it's a lot of science it's a lot about communicating research and scientific ideas um to to a general audience and and finding the best way to do that you know we're not producing content without dialogue like like you are but i mean you know uh, I think it's it's always important, and this is something that I tell you know all of the scientists that that we work with, um, is that you know it's it, it's less important to get your scientific research and uh, across. What you want to do is inspire people to learn more about the topic. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, exactly. Yeah, and if you can produce something, I mean, you're producing something that is you know uh, ha- has a very broad general appeal, um, and if it just gets people thinking about you know, uh, you know, these are maybe, you know, some of the potential, you know, long-term effects of, of climate change, then yeah. you're, you're getting, we're getting somewhere. Yeah, exactly. And finding a way to also sort of put, put some faces to it because there's the, the, the film takes place within this world, but ultimately it's about the, it's about the, the main character, what she's trying to do and the sacrifice that she makes. So I think that it, 
Um, it's almost more about putting a, putting that sort of human face, even though she's animated, but you know what I mean? Um, putting that sort of, that, that face and sort of, uh, showing the, the action, sort of what she has to do in order to, to, to do what she believes is right. So. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I want you to talk a little bit about sort of the, the, the reception that you've gotten, uh, towards the film or, or at least this short version that, that you released, um, as, as a part of this, uh, sort of Earth Day campaign. Uh, yeah. What kind of responses to the film have you gotten so far? It's been fantastic. I mean, yeah, we, uh, everyone who's, well, I won't say everyone who's seen it, everyone who has seen it and then come and told me anything about it has been just, uh, a, you know, very, very, um, very impressed and, and, you know, very, very pleased to see it. Um, I'm trying to think, we, I was at a, a, I've been at a couple of film festivals and kind of gotten into a bit more of the environmental debate. And I think that, goes back to what it wasn't even as much of a debate because it, it tended to be a couple of people who came up to me and who had said that they were more on the other side of the environmental thing, but they still really enjoyed and respected the, the piece. And they thought that it did a, a very good job of sort of presenting, presenting this world and this idea. Uh, but again, in a way that didn't, you know, that wasn't, they, they didn't feel turned off by it. Um, so I guess it's, it's specifically within the environmental aspect of that, I think that's probably one of the, um, one of the, the, the most interesting sort of things that's come out of it is those conversations that have come up around it. Yeah, that's, that's huge, right? I mean, because that's, that's really, you know, I mean, not to say that that's your target audience, because you're obviously going for a very sort of, you know, broad right. appeal with, with your story. Um, uh-huh. and, and, and I think it, it definitely has that appeal, but the fact that you can reach, folks who maybe don't believe 100% in climate change, you know, uh, or, or maybe questioning some of these issues, the fact that you can reach them, and they can come up to you and, 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 you know, say that they've enjoyed the story, right? And I mean, you, mm-hmm. you've reached them, you know, maybe it didn't convert them, uh, uh, you know, or didn't, you know, uh, make them understand the importance of this issue right off the bat, but they're thinking about it, right? Exactly. So, yeah. And that's, that's the first step. That's where you got to start. So that's, that's huge. That's good. Yeah. That's good to hear. Yeah, yeah. In fact, yeah, one of the comments that uh, I know I just seen recently that someone had posted online was, uh, uh, and they said the same thing. They loved the film. They were, uh, they don't really, uh, they're especially not in support so much because one of the big elements of the film, because it's uh, the hero is trying to seed the clouds, which is sort of geo climate control, um, and that's definitely something that's a bit more. Um, that's a bit more fringe and definitely has m- many fewer supporters in terms of people talking about starting to put stuff into the atmosphere in order to actually try to, you know, actively control what's happening to the climate. And that starts to get into a whole different area. And, you know, for this, for this film, it, uh, it worked a little bit more because we're presenting this, this very, this very bleak world, this bleak future where that's sort of the only hope remaining. So, but yeah, that's, it's, it's interesting that it's kind of touched on a few of those different things that people have responded to. Yeah, for sure. And people are, you know, people are sort of looking at your film and they're digging deeper and pulling out these little elements and interpreting it. And they're, you're, mm-hmm. you got them thinking about it, right? Yeah. Which is mm-hmm. the most important thing. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about this partnership that you developed with the Canopy Project for the Earth mm-hmm. Day release. Um, well, uh, essentially, I mean, it's, uh, because of the environmental aspect of the film and because I personally am, uh, definitely wanting to do more personally, um, as a filmmaker, I don't really have uh, a whole lot to offer in terms of 
funds to you know support some as these causes as much as I as much as I'd like. So we thought, well, why don't we sort of uh, use the film? And so essentially, we made it so that anyone who bought uh, who purchased, uh, we did an early access thing through Vimeo on Demand, where I guess uh, about a month before we did the 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 wide release that we we just did recently here. Um, anyone who bought the film could see it early. They get access to some bonus features, and for everyone who bought the film, we planted a tree through the Canopy Project. So, um, so yes, so it was a it was a, a great partnership and just a, a way to sort of reach back and give something back to the community, and um, you know, just sort of uh, just sort of spread the love a little bit. Fantastic. So, yeah. um, and and th- this is something that that is still available, right? I think I saw that folks can still. Through Vimeo on demands, they can still purchase like a, a bonus features version of the film. Exactly, and it's essentially because we we've released the film now. The the thing that people can still get access to is the um, uh, it's essentially we've got four commentary tracks, and we also have a, a music only version of the film because a lot of people were asking where they could get the where they could hear the score. Um, and it's only 10 minutes long, but our composer, Chris Raymond, did a fantastic job. And without, for a film that doesn't have words, the music really kind of carries the narrative in, in many ways. So, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So mm-hmm. um, may- maybe you can just uh, tell folks where they can go to, to watch the film and learn more about the project. Oh, uh, the easiest thing to do is just go to OceanMaker.com, all one word. Thanks a lot, uh, Lucas, for coming on the show and chatting about this really interesting project. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. All right, that was our conversation with Lucas Martell, film director and animator responsible for The Ocean Maker, which you can watch right now at the film's website. Um, I I must say that I really did not anticipate the level of thought that Lucas has put into the environmental components of his story and how these environmental components might be able to play a positive outreach role. And, of course, it's always exciting for me to meet another fan of the science fiction uh, Mars trilogy written by Kim Stanley Robinson, which comes highly recommended for both Lucas and myself, apparently, if you're looking for a good summer read. As usual, we'll have the links to Lucas's film and the animation studio Mighty Coconut up on the show notes page for this episode, which you can find at wildlensinc.org slash EOC27. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. Humidors.